0: Welcome to another edition of Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Gawler. Debbie Franke ogue says life is a mysterious journey of ups and downs, of immense beauty and delight, as well as challenge and sometimes despair. Debbie brings 43 years of therapy experience to her clients and bridges the gap in East-West medicine, as well as complementary and traditional conventional approaches. Importantly, she specializes in helping individuals regain clarity, control and joy in their lives as they navigate the cancer maze. And Debbie frankie Oak has really earned that credibility, not only as a seasoned therapist and social worker, but as a hardworking survivor of stage 4 nodular lymphoma. And she remarkably survived without any conventional therapy. Debbie frankie Oak, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Uh, It's great to have you here. We actually met many years ago, actually at Carolina conferences. Uh, Yes, yes, and loved it. (laughs) Wonderful to have you as a guest on the show today, Um, Debbie. You have a very large story. Um, I'm wondering if you could take some time at the beginning of today's show to tell us the story of your journey with uh, cancer. Twenty seven years ago now. Yes. Yeah. Uh Okay. Take it away.
1: 1984. We're moving actually into. longer than that but yes the what had happened was that I had remarried for the second time Oscar and I had met one another um, we got married in June of 1984 and in September of 1984 um, I was pregnant and, and miscarrying I was actually doing a workshop far from home and um, came back home bleeding and uh, went to a gynecologist who said, one, that I was pregnant, and two, that there was a node um, in my groin that he didn't like very much. And that, of course, was the beginning of this um, whirlwind of diagnosis, et cetera. I had wonderful doctors, and my uh, gynecologist and surgeon were um, went together, worked together, and they came into the surgery, both were in the surgery with me, my gynecologist sort of holding my hand. But the reality was um, that I was diagnosed with, eventually diagnosed after, you know, all the the rigorous uh, testing with uh, lymphoma, mm-hmm. on Hodgkin's lymphoma.
0: And uh, after uh, you had your diagnosis, what happened then?
1: Well, then I think... Um, the diagnosis came over the phone, which I felt was enough to uh, bring up my ire, which was a really good thing because uh, it, that was the propulsion to begin a search, an internal search. My feeling was that um, I've always felt that everything was possible, but I really wanted to put it to the test in this experience and began to do. I had known a lot about meditation. I'd actually taught stress management techniques and meditation, but I hadn't really been practicing what I was preaching. And so the tools were right there for me to begin an internal um an in, not only an internal dialogue, but an internal exploration where I was sort of, I, was, I had become the Admiral Perry of uh, my own internal terrain and wanted to really begin to navigate both the physiological and the psychological and the spiritual needs that I might be avoiding.
0: Uh-huh, yeah. You were offered um, treatments, but they weren't going to be very effective, and I believe that you... They were... offered treatment. Yeah.
1: Um, but essentially what was said was that this was, at, at that time, and I don't know if that's true now, was considered incurable. And so it wasn't a difficult thing for me to make a decision not to do treatment. What I did was go to three different institutions. I went to Sloan-Kettering, be, Mass General, and then had heard about things that were going on at Stanford, um, so it was all three institutions. What, what propelled me into making this decision was that none of them were in agreement. Sloan-Kettering said one thing, Mass General said another, and Stanford said do nothing. You could do nothing, just wait. And of course, that to me was the most appealing. Um, coming from Woodstock, New York, the, or living <laughs> in Woodstock, New York, which was is the home of um, of uh, forefront. And I, I really, I felt that food, diet, exercise, all of those, all of those things, could really influence. And so what I went with was the easiest, because I felt that, um, which was Stanford, which was doing nothing and see what would happen. Although it wasn't doing nothing, it was doing many things. It just wasn't doing conventional treatment.
0: Yeah, so you were this, By the
1: way, is something when people come to me and they, they say, should I do this? Of course, one, I never answer that question. I need them to answer that question, but I want people to know that there was nothing offered to me, really, that was going to influence the course of this disease.
0: I think that's really very significant, and obviously you're here to tell the the tale many, many, many years later. Yeah. Um, Debbie, a film uh, was made about your recovery story, how did that come about?
1: Well, I have a very dear friend and family member that I've known since high school, and he was working on a show with Phil Donahue in Russia and came back to say that um, Marlo Thomas, Carol Hart, Kathy Berlin had formed a production company and were looking for stories, and so I brought the story to them. Uh-huh. I wanted, see, part of what I have always done is education. It's like I'm a therapist, but I really feel that I'm much more an educator than I am a therapist, or I'm both, really. <laughs> but my feeling was that once I knew the direction of, of what was happening with my disease, I really wanted to share it with people. Not because I felt that Debbie Frankie Og was the important aspect of this, but what was important is that people could influence the course of their disease, dis-ease. Mm-hmm. And that to me was a really critical factor. So we pitched the story and they liked it. And of course, Carol Hart and Bruce Hart became extremely close friends of ours and um, Carol diagnosed with a with a not very long after really with some something that she was told she'd be dead in four, in four months, and she's still around and kicking too. So it's
0: good to have a friend like yes. you. <laughs>
1: yeah, it was destined. <laughs> we were destined to meet.
0: Absolutely. Uh, the, the film was fantastic, actually, Thanks. and I, I think it really brought home that sense of uh, education and positive empowerment because it wasn't as if you went off on, on one kind of a, a uh, tangent. Um, it was because the medical wasn't available, and instead of just giving up and watching and waiting, as you said, you actually became proactive. So how close was the movie to your story?
1: Not so close. I mean, some... Potentially, it's true, but Oscar didn't propose to me on a bus, and I didn't wear high heels and leave them on the stairs going, you know, upstairs to the bedroom. And But the essential aspects of the story were true, other than the fact that I um, uh, they didn't think that it would be believable for me to... Um, be able to mobilize myself. And so Oscar became more the mobilization in the film mm-hmm. um, to, toward the, this direction, where I was really sort of a, very much a self-starter. And, um, you know, really immediately after diagnosis, began my search inside myself.
0: Great. Um, it's good to know that because uh, quite often the romantic side of the movie is, uh, is given a little more push than the reality side. So I've wondered myself, um, for you and Oscar then, how did the movie actually impact your lives? Was it a really big thing?
1: No. And I was really grateful that it wasn't. It's, it's, I really developed a close relationship with creator at that point. It... Um Uh, prior to that, I think because both my mother and father had died very young, and I had been brought up in a spiritual tradition, I was really angry with God. But this was the opportunity, here I am in my early 40s, having been diagnosed, for me to really come back to, um, my own very strong beliefs in spirit, and, um, Oscar and I, uh, Oscar and I had just had Jenny. we I was diagnosed in September, and it, we had just been married. We were diagnosed in September. I had a miscarriage at that time. That miscarriage was I, I had a long conversation with that baby in utero and said, please, if I'm going to have to go into treatment, I really don't want your little spirit to have to deal with this. And so, the, the baby miscarried, which I was very grateful for. And then on February 19th, the, so that's four months later, um, and we were going for this, um, I was pregnant. This was after I could see in meditation that, the, that, the, that everything had changed in my body, which was later confirmed. So I became, we, not I, we became pregnant Um, And Jenny was born on October 7th um, that following year. That, because she was born, my, again, in talking to Creator, it was, please don't take me far from home. I want to be here for her. That that was, for me, that was one of the major propulsions in my life, her birth. And it was like growing a baby rather than growing a disease. It was growing ease rather than growing disease. And she, you know, she became one of the major teachers for both Oscar and me. And so, you know, the the film, as you ask, I mean, millions of people have seen that film. And I know that it has had impact because I get calls or emails um, um, from people even now. Uh, How many years later is it? A long time. Um, but if I asked to please be able to stay very close to home until Jenny was, uh, until Jenny was grown and on her, on her way.
0: Yeah, fantastic. I, I think what you're saying is you've really achieved to be an educator through using the medium of film and, um, and other means and yet be able to keep your space and keep your self-care going.
1: Yeah, because to me that is that has been the lifelong change. It has been that I my own needs come into the picture. Where I think prior to that, um, having been a really deprived child in many ways, I ignored a lot of what I need. I don't do that anymore, and I and and I'm I'm very pleased about it. So that my diet, how much sleep I have, how much exercise I have, how much laughter I have, all of those things are very much a part of my everyday life now. As much as, as, much as I can have, I, I, um, I bring in.
0: That's a great way to finish our first segment of Navigating the Cancer Maze. We're back with Navigating the Cancer Maze and my very special guest in conversation today is Debbie Frankie Ogue who is a survivor of stage 4 nodular lymphoma, and she's telling us about her story and her work. So, uh, welcome back after the break. Um, Can you tell us about the work of Larry Lashan? He wrote Cancer is a Turning Point. He seems to have been the grandfather for many people. I know he was an influence for you. Um, Can you kind of share that part of your life?
1: Actually, Larry Lashan and his work came in after um, the people who majorly influenced me were Gene Octoburg and Frank Lawless, uh, Dr. Michael Samuels, um, and uh, Carl Simonton. They were really the people. It was Carl's book, um, uh, that Getting Well Again, that was the beginning for me. It was a stepping-off point. So years later, Gene and Frank were doing a workshop, and they really became mentors of mine. And I met Terry Amar at that workshop, and Terry and Mary Bobas were doing work with Larry Lashan in Florida, and that was how I got down to Florida to work with the Lashan Institute. Larry's work, what what was exciting to me about Larry's work, as well as everyone else's, was they affirmed what I had already discovered when I was doing meditation. And that, to me, was a very important thing. It was like I was never good in science. Uh, Bester C. Weed in high school, I think, uh, had quite a challenge in trying to get information into my brain. And um, so the, the, all of their work, all of their science confirmed all of my intuition. And that, for me, was a critical, critical factor. It was a critical point. It was like it affirmed that my knowledge, learned in a very different way, had value, had importance.
0: I can imagine how remarkable that was in that moment. Even it's um, yeah to uh, be endorsed and acknowledge oneself mm-hmm. for that achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, it, well, it's it's magic.
1: When you don't know know the science and just sitting very quietly, information starts to come into you by images or words or that they're dropped into your psyche, and then you find that that all of that has relevance, that you know has, if I felt it had relevance, but then it was affirmed that it had relevance, it was. It was, it was, it, it, it was life-affirming.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of listeners today would really take uh, heart from that because so many people tell me that they have these impressions, they have these dreams, they have these thoughts, but they're often dismissing them because they don't believe in themselves. Yeah. They think that the science is all of it, and we know the science is some of it, but it's not all of it.
1: Science is very important, but I really believe that we're supposed to be using both hemispheres. We're supposed to be using the left and right brain fluidly, and we don't. And that's one of the things that I really believe is, is the future.
0: Mm. Now, obviously, uh, when everyone has a diagnosis of cancer, they're searching for the cure. Um, so when patients hear of your recovery story and they come to see you to discover what your secret magic bullet was, what, what do you tell them, and how do you handle that personally?
1: You know, I I really don't believe that I have the answer. I do believe that each person has their own answer, and that's what I essentially tell people. I don't think there is a magic bullet. It's like I am sure that some people, when they take antibiotics, do great with them, and other people who take antibiotics have real difficulty with them. I believe that that's true for everyone. As remarkable as it is that we all have individual fingerprints. We also have individual physiological, psychological, spiritual. Uh, our, we have our own path, and that's my work. My work is helping people to begin to um, explore that path, listen to themselves, and go in the direction that, that is, that is uh, what's the word I want, thriving for them. So the, in, in my work, sometimes I am walking with people into their death. Sometimes I am walking with people into their lives. But in either case, what we're doing together is finding that thrive state in, where, in whatever direction we're going.
0: And that's beautifully put. Um, It's a good opportunity now at this point, too, to talk about the spontaneous remission aspect, because a few weeks ago on the show, I interviewed Carol Hirschberg, who's also known to you. Um, She's the co-author for the listeners. She's a co-author of the study of the um, ion spontaneous remission, which was a study of about... Three and a half thousand references of spontaneous remission from journals and so forth around the world. So, for you as a true survivor, can you share your views from a very personal viewpoint on this phenomenon of what is called in the medical profession spontaneous remission?
1: I, I don't. I, I certainly don't think that my um, remission was spontaneous. I think my remission was um, uh, hard work on my part of. Of changing psychological factors that were um, not healthy for me that uh, I felt my chemotherapy was really food and supplements and exercise Um, but what I do believe is that what can go in one direction what can move from ease to dis-ease can move back to ease I firmly truly believe that now how far along someone is in the diseased process, obviously, and what their contract is with creator, obviously are factors. But, but my feeling is that, it, that spontaneous, unspontaneous remission, or spontaneous remission, if you will, is possible for everyone hopefully possible for everyone. Everything is possible.
0: (laughs) I agree. I'm often talking about walking in the field of all possibilities. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I want to move on now, Carol, to talking about fear. Um, It's been my experience in practice that patients often subconsciously deep down know the trigger that assists their recovery. They know about the Achilles heel that causes the resistance to their recovery and is a block. And they often know about the way that they could sabotage the recovery. And a lot of that to me has been, um, in my experience, it's revolved around fear. So I'd like to really hear your thoughts on this because I know it's a subject you're really um, very keen to work with with your patients is fear as it relates to those issues. Can you make some comments?
1: Yeah, you know, I really believe that that Everyone is set into a very specific classroom, uh, which has very specific lesson plans. That happens very early in our life. In my instance, my mother, our mother, there were four, there were four of us, our, our mother became ill with cancer when I was five and died when I was seven. My dad remarried when I was nine, and by um, 12, he died very suddenly. For me, I, my, my, the belief that terrified me more than anything was that I was some kind of little ghoul that made things like that happen. And that became the little cancer the, and the rage that was attending to it was that became what I see as a little cancer. It was like this ball of terror that somehow I was involved um, both of those, both of those deaths were around the time. Now, some people don't believe in edible, but for me, it was—I I do because I've seen it over the years that little girls want to marry their daddies, and I wanted to marry my daddy, and my daddy died. That was why I was a horrible, terrible little person, and that little—that little core became walled off so that I couldn't even find it, but it influenced everything in my world which by the way is speaking of a connect the dots because i firmly believe in connect the dots that my marriage to oscar was the propulsion to have this challenge come up because it was it was my fear that if you loved somebody they i i could kill them that that i i had to challenge in that, when when I married Oscar, because he has been the love of my life. Mm. Did, did I answer your question?
0: Yeah, yeah, you did. Because I I think what we see, well, I certainly see it often, and I've worked with about fifteen thousand patients now, um, over almost forty years. So around you know similar vintage in our work, uh, I, I certainly see these childhood patterns that appear to play out. In how people respond to life
1: so what I what I do to go to the to the angle of what I do with people that I work with I help them to see that it isn't it, it that the experiences were really set out for them that this was if you will karma that it is a um, that they had no choice but to go. Be, do what happened in their early lives. And then we begin to look at how, how their judgments or other people's judgments of their behavior become calcified. And then we start really um, making those calcifications, if you will, more malleable and easier until people can really see who they really are. You know, it's like I, I, I've, I've often said to people, I'm a gardener. And, and you are a very specific seed, and we want that to thrive. And so we begin to look at what the obstacles are. And things aren't nearly as fearful when you have somebody walking into it with you, and that's what I do. I walk into those fears with people. And fear is an incredible energy, you know, much like anger. It's an incredible energy, and when that's harnessed, It can do all sorts of bad things. And what I'm interested in is converting that into a a propulsion toward thrive.
0: Wow, the alchemy of healing. That's fantastic. We are going to take another break. I can't believe it, but it's the end of the second uh, segment of the show today. So we'll take a break like to come back and pick up where we left on then about causing cancer and guilt, blame and shame. So don't go away. I'm your host, Grace Gawler. We'll be back shortly with Navigating the Cancer Maze. And today I'm in conversation with Debbie Frankie O'G who is a survivor of lymphoma and has some amazing things to share with you. We'll be back soon. We're back with Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Gorder. If you've just tuned in, we're talking today about long-term survival and thriving through, after and beyond cancer. And my special guest today is Debbie Frankie Ogue. So before the break, uh, Debbie, we were actually discussing uh, the impact of one's life on cancer. Now, there's a really fine balance, isn't there, between the cause and effect. And when you talk about this with the client, um, it's a really important thing to help them to shape it so they don't say, I caused my cancer, you know, the new age thing. uh, And then they have guilt, blame and shame. Um, Can you say a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's obviously a part of the work. Young children, when young children are uh, scolded and chastised and whatever, they, they're, they're, that, that little being always takes it in as they are doing something wrong. A lot of the work is about understanding that there is no shame in this. There is no blame. It's simply whatever it is simply is. And so what we do is we begin to convert that energy of, of self-hatred into self-love. Because I see shame and blame as a way of controlling behavior. And what, what I think is really important is to understand exactly who each person is that, that, and so that, that they can become their truly authentic self. Because when that happens... You're sturdy. You're as sturdy as you can possibly be. It's like I—I—I I, I don't know whether. Well, um, my—I call myself affectionately now Debbie Frankie, ah, uh, frankly odd instead of Frankie <laughs> Odd, and I am frankly odd. There, the way that I have thought, I have hidden myself. I hid myself away for years and years. My experiences taught me things that the uh, that out in the world were not seen as um, you know, pardon the expression normal and so so for example I had a lot of I would get psychic hits I would have dreams the dreams would be predictive I never talked about those things I didn't talk about a lot of things and I really believe that what happens is if we can bring people to their really authentic self, that's the place where people can thrive, really, truly thrive. We were made this way, each of us. We're all an aspect of, in in my mind, we are all an aspect of the divine. So there aren't any mistakes. There just aren't.
0: Mm, I I think you've really hit on something that's very important that's often uh, not talked about a lot in a couple of the things you've just said and that is about the conservation of energy for cancer patients where so much energy goes in things like fear and uh, all the the betrayals, you know, the people we need to forgive. There's so much energy that's attached and going out to those things and that the cancer patient needs to put deposits in their energy bank account. It's
1: so funny. I I call them leaks. Leaks. Yeah, they're leaks. Those kinds of leaks are what we try to do is get that energy and be able to focus it on that which is positive rather than that which is negative.
0: And there is a lot of energy in it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, a lot of energy.
0: Uh, touching on forgiveness in recovery, uh, as you have experienced it, uh, can you provide any pearls of wisdom? This is something that's, again, often bandied about, a very you know, sort of willy-nilly, um, you know, you've got to forgive. And forgiveness is difficult when you are really in the midst of an illness. But it's also a very important part because, again, it's a part of the conservation of energy, so yeah. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that from your experience?
1: Well, first and foremost, I think that forgiveness has to be of set for oneself, to oneself. Once forgiveness can happen in that place, once we can recognize that we are we are not perfect, we will never be perfect. Um, we can understand that no one else is perfect either, and that. That becomes a place where there we don't form any kind of rigid boundaries around ourselves or around other people. Um, and that, of course, all of this, everything is energy. Um, and because it is energy, then, then all that energy of keeping yourself bound by your anger or bound by your wrongedness, um, can be used toward healing
0: mm. I think it's a, also a very important thing in your own um, pathway to recovery did you feel that was important for you in the forgiving of yourself
1: yeah I, I, I felt I was a rageful little girl and a rageful young adult and what what I came to realize is that that anger was that anger was not inappropriate and it needed to be channeled in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. I was so angry that both of my parents died when everyone else around me had a normal life. I thought, well, why am why is this happening? Why is this happening to us, to my family and not to others? That, of course, is a ridiculous question. What I, what I should have been asking is how can, I mo- how can I alchemize, to use your word, and I use that all the time too, how do I make this, this pile of caca into, um, into light that becomes my world? Because each of our experiences, I really believe there is no mistake in them. There is no wrongness in them. They can be difficult certainly my early life and my later life was difficult it, there were still times of difficulty but there is no resistance to those difficulties now now it's trying to find the pearl in it the gold in it
0: mhm and that leads me on to talking about chronic stress and negative stress because all of these things actually do add up to going in that big pool of stress that we have to deal with mm-hmm. as well as the day to day so um, how do you kind of work with that? What what's the role do you believe of stress reduction and recovery?
1: Well, I think it's very important because it's in that most many of us, I think, in this world, it's all speeded up so much. We we don't have time to be able to hear our own little tiny signals. And I, it's like the way I describe it to people I'm working with is like a light. We can't feel the light tap on our knee. We can only feel it when it's a slap. Stress reduction—what it does is to bring you, or stress reduction techniques, meditation, yoga, exercise, all, and many more. All of those things provide you with the opportunity of stillness, and in that stillness, is 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 the meat of the juice of who you are and what you need.
0: Mm. You you do some particular breathing techniques. Um,
1: Lots of different ones.
0: Yeah, there was one particularly on your website that I wasn't familiar with. Um, Is it the Maitre breathing technique? Which is it? Is that the way I pronounce it, the Maitre? Breathwork, Maitre. Yeah, Maitre, is it? Maitre
1: is, a. we have workshops where... People come with an intention, and combined with the intention, the fire breath of yoga and music, people move through, um, and that their intention. They lay on a mat and they do this breathing along with the music, and then off they go into a very altered state, where their intention always becomes clarified. It's a wonderful. It's a day long. Um, workshop, and for me, it was actually the reason why I then became a uh, reverend, so that I could do energy work on people and put my hands on them, because it was such a powerful healing tool. It's like uh, it's like fast forward. It's not. The mind It's not the words that are speaking, as in a therapeutic situation. It is your deep intelligence that's speaking through what's going on in your mind, um, what you're receiving in that altered state.
0: Great. Is, um, is that one of the main techniques that you would use in terms of breath? You mentioned yoga breathing. Are there any kind of tips for patients there?
1: Well, I, I think just being – what's important to understand is that an anxiety state is, is generally – is always accompanied by shortness of breath. If you lengthen the breath and deepen the breath, you can alter your state. So breath, to me, is, is everything. If you lengthen and deepen your breath and you insist upon that, you can alter your state of consciousness. It's an outside-in technique rather than an inside-out technique.
0: Yeah, it's very cheap and available too. <laughs> yeah,
1: anytime.
0: <laughs> anytime. Time. And I just learned recently actually from my partner, Pep, he did some research and he discovered that 70% of the body's detox actually happens through breath.
1: Yes, and that's the reason why some of those yogis um, live such long lives in those caves. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We don't have to go to the cave. We can fortunately do it in the comfort of our homes. Exactly. <laughs> um, Debbie, when someone comes to see you, you talk about you help them to write their own prescription for optimal living and self-expression. Um, so when a person who's dealing with cancer and they, they haven't come into any of this work before, what could they expect when they come to see you first up?
1: Well, I, I, I generally like to ask for history first. Because I want to an, and an themes. What I really believe is that what often happens in our life is it's very much like it's very much like being in, it is being in school that there are certain themes that each one of us have been given. In my instance, for example, it's abandonment and loss and death. Those themes came up repeatedly, over and over again. And I really believe it's our challenge to be able to take those themes, which I ask people to identify, and then we begin to look and see how those themes repeat. And then we begin to look for the little dots, you know, the, the connect the dots theory. This is a theory of mine that, that I really believe happens, that the, these dots, if you pay attention, these dots go around and around until they finally are able to complete themselves, and and when they complete, the theme disappears, and so we begin to look for those dots to begin to connect them, so that um, uh, so that we can become whole. I don't know if I've explained that very well.
0: Actually, I think you have. I think that's a really uh, a nice image to see those dots going around until everything's connecting.
1: And then once it's connected, it's done. Yep. That's what I feel, I feel in my own experience and what I've seen in other people's worlds.
0: Fantastic. That's a good note to finish on for this particular session with Navigating the Cancer Maze. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back with more of this wonderful story of... Debbie Frankie-Oak. We're back with Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host Grace Gawler and today we are talking with Debbie Frankie-Oak who has had a recovery from lymphoma stage 4 and she's also a therapist and a social worker and has been working for somewhere around 43 years Debbie?
1: Yeah, it's a long time. It's a long time. I'm almost
0: 71. It's hard to believe. Wow, yeah. So this is a lady who knows a lot about healing from her own perspective and from dealing with patients as well. Um, Debbie, I'd like to start the last session here asking you about the most significant issues that your clients who are dealing with cancer bring to the therapy session. Um, You've talked about some of these universal themes, and perhaps you'd just like to enlarge a little with those.
1: What people bring
0: yeah as as cancer patients perhaps is there a difference to uh, what a cancer patient brings to the table um, differently to what say a a person who's just dealing with anxiety
1: well yes obviously yes because anxiety is I mean anxiety is obviously a factor with people who have been diagnosed with cancer but I think that what, one of the things that I look for is what's been walled off. That I really believe that, that it, to me, the it's like microcosm and macrocosm. It's like from the cell to the universe is really true with cancer patients. So experience can be in and of itself can be the cancer. And so, um, so I guess in that way, actually, as mm-hmm. I as I talk about it, know that the the only difference is that the the for some people the that walled off experience or that difficult experience becomes behavioral and some people it becomes physical and for some people it becomes all of them and for me i think that the the cancer patient in particular is often one who denies themselves
0: yeah, very good answer to that, I think. Um, I see on your website, and we're going to just move on with the work that you actually do. Um, so I see on your website that uh, you have one-on-one consultations, you present workshops. I see there's one for advanced students, healthy living, learning to thrive with an illness and stress reduction. Um, you do one-on-ones. Can you talk a little bit about the power of the group as different to the one-on-one experience, especially power for of the, people the power for cancer? Of the
1: group is simply about more energy, much, much more energy. I had a call recently from a woman in, uh, well, actually a couple of years ago, a woman in California whose very dear friend was ill, and she said, would you come out here? And I said, I'd be happy to if, if you could get a group of people together and I, they got a group together. I went out there. It was all around this one person's need, but everyone was there. And we began to harness the energy there um, in a way, um, asking, and I always do this, I ask very specifically what people want because what I try to do when I'm working in group is to meet everyone's need. And if you're able to do that, the energy grows and grows and grows. And then using that energy, I help people understand how they can use that energy toward themselves and how they can use it together in group. I love groups. I love individuals. I, I, I love people. So it's, it's, I find it fun to work in groups and support, a kind of support that is critical. There is nothing, nothing like other people knowing what you are going through.
0: To, to sort of let the exhale come. Yeah, great. I, I love uh, working in groups as well. A lot of individuals think that a group's going to be very uncomfortable, but once they actually get into it, they find it's a whole different experience and they wish yeah. they'd done it sooner. <laughs> yeah. Debbie, how do you view cancer today?
1: Well, you know, I think we're in a tremendous... I think that the world has a cancer today. Um, I think our air is difficult. I think our food is difficult. I think our water is difficult. I think that there are many things that are hidden from us. Using an example, for example, of what happened in, in Japan, which we hear nothing about anymore, but I know people whose, whose, whose food has been tainted because of it. I think we have a tremendous challenge, a much greater challenge than we had maybe 50, 60, different, different challenges, let me put it that way. And so I think it really is important that we become more conscious, more conscious about what we eat, how we feel, what we do, so that we can really optimize, we can optimize our own experience. And as a large group, you know, in the movie, one of the things that was stressed was organic food and acupuncture and and I had an acupuncturist tell me years later how much she noticed that that film influenced people's behavior and, and making acupuncture mainstream and organic food mainstream. Those things, to me, are being able to optimize our lives in those ways, I think should be everyone's right. So.
0: And today, what do you do for your self-care? <laughs> Let's. <laughs>
1: Yoga every day, which I have come, I, I found the right teacher, and yoga has opened and opened and opened my world. Um, I eat organic food. I take uh, supplements. I am very careful about where I place myself, that if I'm in experiences that are not right for me, I, I exit. Um I laugh a lot. I I I make delicious food, and I have delicious friends and family,
0: mm, including Oscar and oh, your yeah. daughter.
1: <laughs> yeah, our daughter is just about to finish graduate school, and um, uh, she is one of the lights of our life. But we have we have been very fortunate, um, and it, it's we have been very fortunate. Not always easy and very, very fortunate, I feel.
0: Yeah. What is your future, uh, Hol? I mean, we can't predict the How future. I know? But, you know, is there a book I've been looking for years to see whether there was going well, to be a know, book I, after the film? Oh, thank you,
1: Grace. <laughs> I, I actually have started a book, and I just, I, I find myself, I, I've got chapters, I've got stories, um, but i haven't gotten to it yet it may happen right now right now there's plenty with the work that i do and the gardens that we have and the friends that we have and the family that we have and um but you never know i never know mm-hmm. i mean i was so excited when i heard your voice on the telephone i thought oh this is a this is a blast from the past, you know, and I would never in a million years have expected it, mm-hmm. just in the same way that I remember once years ago getting a call from the Oprah Winfrey show asking me to come on. I thought, nah, really? Is this a joke? But the, the you know, it's, I have no idea what the future is bringing. I live into it. That's what happens. I, I live into it, and when I have a request, I talk to Creator, and I say, hey, anything can, can what, what do you think? But I go along, I really go, I say yes to most everything now.
0: Right. Yeah. Because
1: I really believe that things that are coming in front of me are things that I need to say yes to.
0: Good, I'm glad you said yes to this interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, you uh, could tell us how people can get in touch with you, please.
1: I'd be delighted. Um, I, I have a Psychology Today website, and it's Debbie, D E B B Y, Frankie, F R A N K E, OG, O G G. And the telephone number is there.
0: And that's dot com?
1: Dot, uh, I guess. No, not Psychology Today. It, it, you'd start with psychology today, but I also have a website which is debbyfrankiog.
0: Okay, the dot coms and the dot orgs can get a little confusing. It's a dot com. It's a dot com. Yeah. Okay. And uh, do you do um, Skype uh, consults with people? I do.
1: I do. I do Skype, which I love, and FaceTime because I have an iPhone and um, and I, and phone. Skype to me is magic, and it. All the information that I need, all the immediacy that I need and we need to work, I find, is right there. I work with people in Alaska and California and Vermont, blah, blah.
0: Good. So if you want to contact Debbie, you've got those contacts. You can also contact me, institute at com, if you'd like me to forward on any information to Debbie. And I'd like to thank you very much today for what you shared. And as well, I'd like to thank you for sharing your life because not everyone that gets through cancer has the skills, um, the ability and the drive and the passion to do this. And you've done that. Thank you so much. You've helped a lot of people. Thank you so much, Grace. Okay. Thanks again, and Bye for now. We'll be back next week with Navigating the Cancer Maze with more interesting guests talking about how to navigate the Cancer Maze. Bye for now.